you know, God's not restricted by your shoes, but there's, sometimes there's just certain things that, yeah, that's not, it's not a, that's not a theology. It's just, um, sometimes God is doing something, right? Like we don't just go around slapping mud in everyone's eyes when we want them to be healed. Like that's, but sometimes God just wants you to step outside your comfort zone in, in strange ways that make you feel a little uncomfortable. Does that make sense? So if you're like, that's uncomfortable, you just ask the Lord, like, Lord, are you trying to push me past that boundary? Or are you like, no, that's not for me. And that's okay. But God wants to challenge you in lots of different ways. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. I remember the first time I did that, I was playing keyboards at a church and the pastor came up and said, hey, are we going to have a great service? And I was like, yeah, I feel like God is going to show up and the power of God is going to be here tonight. And he's like, yes. And I said, in fact, I feel like we're on holy ground. And he's like, yes. And I said, in fact, I was wearing flip-flops and I said, I think I'm going to take off my shoes tonight and be on holy ground. And he's like, yes, let's do it. And then I went on and I took off my flip-flops and I played the keyboard and God moved and it was powerful. And the next day I got taken to lunch by the music pastor and he said, hey, so nobody wants to see your big gangly toes, your big hairy gangly toes. What was all that about? And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, you can't be shoeless on stage. And, and I'm like, but I, I told the pastor that I was going to do it, and he said, yeah, let's go. And he goes, yeah, he told me to talk to you about that. So obviously he wasn't listening to a word you said. <laughs> he was like, in, come on, when you're a pastor and you're ready to do the message, yeah. <laughs> when you're ready to do the message, like your mind's in a million other places. So he was like, yeah, whatever you said, Holy Spirit, rah, rah, you know. <laughs> so I always said like, hey, um, I'm not weird, but I will never, t you know, I will never just instantly shut down something that's outside of my comfort zone. You know, if it's a distraction or it's hurting somebody else, uh, uh, if it's stopping somebody else from worship, then we will look at it. But as long as it's yours and it's for you and it doesn't involve anyone else, pay attention to your own worship. Amen? Amen? Pay attention to your own worship. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. So uh, I'm going to keep it brief. <laughs> hey, at least I said it. <laughs> Hallelujah. Now, I just, I just want to set that tone one more time, that we haven't shifted atmospheres. We haven't changed. But I believe God is going to move through this service. And as I'm speaking, if you feel, you don't have to wait for the altar call. We're going to open up to the altar call like we always do at the end. But I, I, I want you to feel free to just be able to worship this morning because I feel like there's breakthrough here. And some of you may experience your breakthrough at a different moment than others. So you don't need to wait for the appropriate time for all of us to break through at the same moment. When you hit yours, let, just let it saturate you. And however you feel inclined, I'm gonna let you guys just be free. Uh, and so don't, be, don't wait for instruction. Let the Lord lead you this morning, amen? That's not every morning, that's not, but it is this morning. So I want to say this. I, I want to talk to you guys about breaking down the altars. Breaking down these altars and getting rid of the idols in your life. When the Lord, when I was talking to the Lord about what 2021 looks like, I had a couple of messages on my heart, a couple of things that the Lord said to me. One of them was that we are in a season of Goliaths and that it's time for the Davids to arise. And I felt like I needed to proceed this message today with that message. And I had, had a stirring on my heart to talk about the Goliaths and the David generation rising up. And I had that desire to bring that before this, and I was preparing for it, and I realized, oh yeah, I'm going to be in New York. I can't preach that. 
and Shoshana was going to speak that Sunday, last Sunday. And so I just let her go with what Holy Spirit told her. She sends me a message, I think the day of, and says, pray for me, I'm speaking this morning. And I wrote back and told her that I was praying for her. And I said, may the, uh, something like uh, along the lines of, in the season of Goliaths, may the Davids arise. Something to that effect, right? Because that was the message on my heart. And as you guys know what she preached on, if you were here last Sunday, and she writes back and says, how did you know what I was preaching on? And I said, hello, prophetic pastor, like, hello. And I was like, we've always been in line. I didn't need to call you and say, hey, this is what's on my heart. What do you think is your message? I already knew. Shoshana listens. I listen. We're both going to listen. It's going to be the same message, okay? So I knew that was what was going to happen. So I was like, okay, Shoshana's speaking today. I know that's the message that's going to go out. So Shoshana prepared it without any instruction, but the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. And so I believe that this message I have today is from heaven, it's not just a good word that's biblically based. It is from heaven, and it is sent to break us into this next season. But we cannot break into another season until we first break down those things in the old season that do not belong. Because there are things that are tethering and tying us. See, now she's in the room. She didn't hear all the nice things I said. I said a lot of nice things while you were out of the room, so, you know, so I didn't have to get embarrassed. <laughs> Okay, so um, we got to break down some things that are tethering us to the last season if we want to step freely into the next season. And so I, I want to paint a picture. And I was uh, at Global Awakening last week, Randy Clark's school where my son goes to school, and Dr. Mike Hutchings made a great analogy that I was like, I have to talk about that. It goes with what I was speaking on today. So I knew Holy Spirit was giving me a divine revelation from heaven, and he was giving me a sermon illustration straight out of the throne room of heaven. So you're going to appreciate this sermon illustration. I'm trying to keep a straight face. You'll see why I think it's heavenly. So I, there's a show that I watch uh, that, that I really do like, and it's one of my more favorite shows. And, and what's interesting about this is the main character is somebody who's constantly facing different trials and situations that test his character and his resolve. It tests his heart. And when you meet this character, at first he's somebody that really doesn't care about anybody. He has no worry or concern for anyone else but him. But along the way in his journey, he encounters somebody that begins to move his heart and he makes a connection to somebody that starts to challenge uh, uh, his heart and his character and it begins to bring to life things inside of him, caring, love, compassion, connection that weren't there before. And it starts to shift him, but he keeps facing these obstacles. And what's interesting about this character is, is that there's all these times where he's facing these obstacles and, and he has to fall back on a set of rules or a set of um, uh, um, principles that guide his life. There are times in our life where we are challenged by things. And we, 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 we use the word of God as a principle base. It's something that we can fall back onto where we know exactly what we're supposed to do. And there are times where we have situations that we're confused on how to handle. And in this character, when he gets into a confusing moment, he tends to lean back on this set of rules that were passed down to him by his forefathers. 
this set of principles that you live by. And when conflicted, he would fall back on these principles. Now, uh, you may know this character. Let me show you this character. But he had a phrase that helped lead him when he wanted to fall back on his principles. He would use this phrase in order to help him remember the direction he should go, if we can put that up. You see why this is from heaven. Yeah. No, no. So, so this is the Mandalorian. If you've never watched this, it's a Star Wars show. Why'd you get rid of it? It's a Star Wars show. It is a Star Wars show. And he says this. This is the way. Anytime that he's in a situation where he's unsure what he's supposed to do about that, what he will do is go back to the Mandalorian code, a code of conduct, a code that Mandalorians live by, these principle sets that they would live by in order to know what to do in situations that, they, uh, uh, that were uh, questionable. And so anytime he faced that situation, he would pull back on these codes that he lived by, and they would say, this is the way. So the principles that guide him were the way. And what's interesting about that is that maybe you didn't know, but that's actually scripture. He's quoting scripture. So Mandalorian is saying, there's a set of principles that guide my life. And when in question, I will fall back on those things that guided my forefathers. And we as believers are called to do the same thing, to live by the way. And I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 30, verses 21 through 23. And this is where it shows up in scripture. It says, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. Then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, away with you. He will also send you rain for the seed you sow in the ground, and the flood that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will graze in broad meadows. This is a promise from Isaiah where it starts out with you saying, this is the way, and then walking in it. See, Mandalorian is quoting scripture, the principles that guide his life. It is an allegory for our God and the way in which we live. But what's so interesting about it is we know the way, we know the word, we know we're supposed to walk in it, but listen to the second part of that. This is the way, walk in it. Then you will desecrate your idols, overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. If we are to walk in the way, it should be marked by removal of idols in our life. And many of us have idols in our life. An idol is anything, and we're going to talk about this a lot. But an idol is anything that is above God, that you put in front of God, that you use to change or shift your image of God. Let me give you a great example. An idol does not necessarily mean another God. Did you know that? It can be an idol of your God. And in fact, in Jewish culture, in the, in the Old Testament, we actually see idols of other gods, Asher poles and idols of Baal and the calf of Baal. And we see all these other idols of different time periods and religions, uh, Egyptian idols and, and statues of Horus and all these different things, the, the eye of Ra. You have all these idols that are built. But you can also see that even the Jews 
turned God into idols and made idols in the way. And God was very clear in his word that you shall have no other gods before me. So he wants to be on top. But then he says, you shall make no graven images, even of me. So even the graven images of God are detestable to him. And the reason is, is that anytime we put anything between us and a relationship with God, an idol will move us from intimacy. Anything that becomes a point of contact that we are focused on instead of him removes us from intimacy. How many of you guys get home, you walk in the door from a long day at work or, or wives, whichever one, you walk in and you kiss a picture of your spouse? You go for the real thing, right? You, you, right? You, you don't walk in and say, oh, there she is. She's cooking dinner, but let me go over here and kiss this picture. I love you, honey. Don't want to disturb you right now, right? You come in the door and, and you're like, oh, he's, he's folding the laundry. So I'm going to go, oh, wait, no, that's not a realistic. That's not, I don't, I don't want to be off in left field. That doesn't make sense. Uh, some, some husband just got elbowed real big right there. Yeah, see, he knew. He knows. He's prophetic. He knew. You need to help me. It's true. It's not wrong. They're not wrong. You have to take those elbows like a man. All right, so, so there's this. We, we don't want to put anything before God. And so God knew that if we made graven images, if we made idols, that we would set them in front of him. In fact, one of the greatest stories of that is actually from when uh, Moses goes up the mountain to go get the Ten Commandments. And we read about, you know, they just came through the Red Sea. They just, they just got saved from Israel. They just saw the Ten Plagues. God came in power and wiped out Egypt. And Moses goes up for the mountain and they're like, well, we haven't seen them in a little while. Guess we should make a graven image. So they, they get all their gold and they make a golden calf. And a lot of people think that they were all of a sudden abandoning themselves to worship foreign gods. But the truth is the word of God tells us, I'm not going to get into a lot of it because I have to move fast to have this make sense. But, but in the word, it tells you that they made a graven image of Yahweh. Aaron actually said, this is the God that just brought us out of Egypt. Aaron never turned to foreign worship. They made a graven image of God. Why? Because when Moses prepared the people, they had to spend three days getting ready, and then God came down on the mountain and began to speak, of, speak to them, and they all said the same thing. That was scary. And they told Moses, you speak to God for us. You tell, him what, you tell us what he said because he's scary. He's scary. So they didn't turn to a foreign God. What they did was they created a God they could handle. They took God's image and they made it palpable to them. They made it manageable to them. And I feel like American Christianity, I travel all over the world and I'm telling you, I say I feel like to, to make it land a little softer, but I need to step on some toes. American Christianity is a golden calf of who God is. The church has made idolatry of theology. They have worshipped the word. And I don't mean that there's anything wrong with the word, but what has happened is that the church has begun to say, my version of the word and my understanding of the word is greater than your understanding of the word. And we've turned our understanding of scripture into an idol. 
where we idolize our revelation from heaven. I know more than you, and I have a doctorate and associates and, and, a, and a masters of divinity, and uh, lots of men have told me I'm smarter than you, so therefore I am. And we've turned it into idolatry, where we idolize our own educations Right, And so you go to, you go to a, a, a liturgical church or you go to a religious church and they have idolized theology. I know more than you. And men don't change. We are idol worshipers by nature. We've done it over and over since the fall. And we'll talk about that. But you go to, you go to a spirit-filled church like us and what's the idolatry? The idolatry is I have more Holy Spirit than you. Right, The music starts and I feel Holy Spirit way more than you. Some churches, their idolatry may be financial. You walk in and they have the better three-piece suit for church than you do. They looking sharp for church. They got the best caddy out there because God has highly blessed and favored them. And they're obviously way more spiritual because they are more blessed and highly favored than you. We create idols out of everything. And in America, church is an idol. Church is an idol. I go to church. Them heathens out there don't. And we've created idols that have separated us from intimacy, not just with God, but with each other. Because we've created idols out of ourselves and our own righteousness. And so because of that, we've separated ourselves from intimacy with God. And there are things that we have put in front of God. We put the picture of the Lord in front of his presence. And it's time for us to remove some of those things and get the idols out of our way this year. I heard the Lord clearly when I asked him, I said, Lord, what do you want to do with your church this year? I know that revival is coming. I know the shaking is coming. And he says, I need them to clean out the idols so that I can fully move through them. Josiah cleaned out the idols. He rediscovered the word of God. And when he did, he saw that he broke the covenant. He renewed and recommitted his covenant. And then he cleaned out the idols. He shared the word of God with the people. And the burning ones came alive. And the nation repented of their sin, of serving other gods. And he wiped out all the idols. We have been in a season where the church is beginning to wake up, rediscovering the power and the word of God. We've begun to repent. We've begun to renew covenants. People are going, hey, I need Jesus. I realize there's no hope in the world. I realize the answer is not out there. The answer is not in other people. It's not in government. We can't wait on them to save anything. And so they've begun to wake up. But the next step is that we need to clear the idols because there are idols we built up in the land that God wants to remove. We need to tear down the altars that were built to other gods in our lives and stop sacrificing our time and our energy to things that are not of heavenly consequence. So we've been in a long history of idolatry. We've been in a long history. In fact, even as far back as, as Abraham, Father Abraham, the beginning of the covenant, I can't go through all of it with you, but I'll look at Joshua 24, uh, 2. And the story of Abraham, if you want to know, is in Genesis 12 and 13, is kind of what, what we're talking about this morning. Genesis 12 and 13 is the story time of Abraham where God kind of calls him out of the land of Ur and to Canaan, okay? And it's kind of confusing when you read it because it actually says that his father, Terah, 
it says that Terah takes his family and goes to Canaan. And then in the next chapter, in 13, it says, and the Lord spoke to Abraham and said, time to leave Haran, where they had planted themselves, and move to Canaan. So it looks as though it's possible that Teron was the original one. Abraham's father was the original one that might have received a word from God, but it was Abraham that was to fulfill it. Until we read in Acts, uh, Acts Stephen gives us a better uh, take of that, and I'll read that in just, uh, um, I don't have it up here, but in, in Acts, I think it's, um, I want to say it's 7, in chapter 7, maybe verse 4, uh, Stephen tells us that uh, Abraham received the word and took his whole family with him, even though Abraham was told to go alone. So Abraham was told to go alone, yet he took his family with him. So Abraham wasn't accustomed to exactly following the commands of the Lord. In fact, if you read it, there's a lot of times that Abraham did not quite follow everything that God said. But remember, Abraham grew up in a time where there was no written word. There was no law. There was nothing. And so sometimes we give Abraham a hard time for his journey of faith. But how many of you guys would struggle trying to get it right with a God you, you had no clue about or you had very little knowledge of? Okay, Abraham was not clueless on God. In fact, we're going to go through that, okay? But in, in Joshua, we learn a little bit about that. It says this in Joshua 24, 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Nahor. They served other gods. So we learn that Abraham's lineage had begun to worship other gods. Um, and we actually can read a little bit about this. In fact, there's nowhere in the Bible that tells us that uh, uh, the ancient story is that Terah, Abraham's father, was an idol maker. He actually made idols beyond the Euphrates for uh, that Mesopotamian area, right there up by Turkey uh, and such. Some people believe that um, Abraham was from uh, Ur, which was down here where modern-day Iraq is. But there's a lot of evidence to suggest it was actually up north. So either one is fine. It won't change what we're doing today. But um, a lot of people believe that he was an idol maker. There, there's the only scripture, which is not scripture, that talks about him being an idol maker is actually found in the Quran. In the Quran, we read a story about him being an idol maker, but nowhere in the Bible. But there is uh, an ancient story that has perpetuated through Jewish culture, through rabbis, through the Talmud, okay, through the storytelling of the rabbis. It's called uh, a midrash. The midrash is a, is a, is, it's a Jewish parable of sorts that fills in biblical texts that we don't know the backstory to. So maybe these are stories that were, they could be uh, uh, myths, mythologies, or they could be small bits that weren't included in scripture, but are still historical stories about time frames. Okay, how many of you guys know there are history that's not in the Bible? Okay, and so I'm not claiming that this is accurate, but it will paint a beautiful picture. Almost every Jewish person that you meet will know this story. This is one of the most famous stories in the Jewish culture that is taught. Because one of the biggest things in Jewish culture is, you shall have no other gods before me. Idols are bad. So idol, idolatry and idol worship become a very big theme to Israel that sets them apart from the rest of the world. The rest of the world is engaged, engaged in idolatry and idol worship. They worship things as representatives of God. And this is the one thing that sets Israel apart very distinctively from the rest of the world. They are a peculiar people. They don't worship an object as their God. They don't have graven images of their God that they can take out and you know, rub for good luck. 
So this is the, the midrash of the Jewish people about Abraham. It goes something like this. Abraham's father, Terah, was an idol maker and a merchant in Ur. Terah went away on a journey and he left Abraham in charge of the store. Abraham took a stick and shattered all of the idols in the store. And then he placed the stick in the hand of the largest idol. When Terah returned from his journey, he found his merchandise in pieces on the floor. What happened, he demanded to know. Oh, Father, it was terrible, Abraham said. The small idols got hungry, and they started fighting for food. And finally, the large idol got angry, and he broke them into little pieces. Idols don't get hungry, said Terah. They don't get angry. They don't speak. They're just idols. Upon hearing this, Abraham smiled and said, Oh, Father, if only your ears could hear what your mouth is saying. Why then do you worship them? And with that, Abraham broke idolatry. That story is also found in the Muslim Quran. It's found a little differently where the main one has an ax in his hand. And it smashed all the other ones to pieces. And he was known for going to the river and giving the idols drinks. <laughs> would need a drink. And so whether there's truth to that, whether it actually happened or not, it sets this tone that it's very possible that Terah was an idol maker and an idol worshiper for a time. But here's the truth. Terah's family was familiar with Yahweh. Sometimes I think we think that Abraham is the first one to ever hear about this God named Yahweh, this, this God of, of, of Israel. We, we learn about it here and we think this is the beginning where God has finally showed up and made the statement. We forget that there was a promise made to Adam and his lineage that eventually a seed would come from woman that would crush the enemy's heel. And so there's a prophetic declaration that's given that goes to Noah and the earth is flooded and then Noah shares that with his children and the lineage of Shem is Abraham's line. So the, the child of Noah is Shem and, and nine generations passes to Abraham. So seven great-grandpas, seven great-grandpas of Abraham was, was uh, Noah. And so they are familiar with this God who saved the earth. They're familiar with the heritage. But how many of you guys know it only takes one generation to get into idol worship? Okay, my mother was raised in church. She went to church. She went to the Methodist church. I was not raised in church. I was raised in the synagogue. I was raised Jewish, but my father follows gurus and Eastern mysticism. And so I didn't encounter and meet Jesus and hear the gospel until I was 16 years old for the first time. It only takes a single generation to fall away. But here's what I want to say. I want to teach you something. I want to give you like, okay, guys, I'm telling you, like I literally could preach this for like six hours. I did nothing but study 3800 BC all the way to 3000 BC. I know everything about ancient Mesopotamian that anyone should never know, okay? So... I'm going to try not to vomit archaeology all over you, okay? Okay, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to do my best. But, but I need to set this up just a little bit. I believe that Terah had an encounter with his son Abraham that shifted him back into alignment of worshiping the God of heaven. 
I believe they knew about it and he had strayed or maybe his father had strayed and they just got off track, but he knew exactly who Jehovah was. He knew exactly who this I am was and, and that shift in Abraham's life when Abraham refused to follow idolatry may have been that moment where he woke up and God said, now here's one that will not give himself over to idols. And so we know that, Moses, we know that Abraham knew about Jesus. The scriptures tell us that Abraham was waiting on this promise of the son, that he saw it and it came to fulfillment. So we know that Abraham knew of the promise. Now, whether Abraham had a revelation, you know, a, 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 a prophetic moment where he saw the promise to come or whether he knew of the seed that was promised from his lineage through Noah down from Adam, whether that or whether it was both, both a knowing of a seed and then the seeing of a prophecy coming to pass. Abraham was acutely aware that this was to come. In fact, most other religions in the world mirrored and mimicked that. The reason why I studied archaeology so much for this message was I found it troubling when I started looking into Egyptian mythology and realized that they have a god of Ra, which is the sun god, and they have this god Horus, which is the son of the sun god, and he was conceived from a virgin woman, and he was to save the day. There's even a resurrection of three days. And I said, well, this is troubling. And I studied through Egyptian mythology and saw how the, the religion would shift and change over these many hundreds of years. And so I, you know, and, and me, I am not one that just takes everything blindly. I, I know who God is, but I want to make sure we're following him. And, and I'm, I'm not just going to go, ah, oh, that, we didn't get that from them. I'm going to actually follow that out and study it and walk it out. And so what I found was is that the most ancient of, of evidence archaeologically about Hebrews and the worship of a single God, the creator of everything, the, the earliest archaeological findings they could find were in the year of 3800 BC. And the, the mythology of Egypt and Horus and Ra the oldest ones dated are around 3100 BC. So 700 years of Christian, or excuse me, of, uh, of Jewish, of Judaism, before Egypt has this revelation. Okay? So it's very obvious that Egypt borrowed those stories from the line of Noah that had been passed down that there was a son and a seed and a promise that was to be given. And there was a prophetic decree in the earth and Egypt, Egyptians borrowed those prophecies, okay? And so we read only a brief point of those prophecies, but I believe that God revealed much more about the coming age and the coming of Jesus and the incarnation of a Messiah than even we read about in scripture, okay? Because remember, if God had revealed too much through scripture, they would have instantly recognized Jesus and there would have been, never been a cross, and so the fact that you had to search out those mysteries made sure the cross was intact. And that's a little bit for another message, okay? But I, I want you to see this, is that um, when Abraham was called out of the land of Haran, where he had stopped, and called to go down to Canaan, when he came into Canaan, he found a famine in the land. So he had come to Bethel. He had come uh, into the land that God had promised him. But when he got there, there was famine. How many of you guys have ever followed what the Lord has told you to only to arrive at your destination and feel like there was no provision? Lord, you called me to this and now it's all broken and fallen apart. 
I got here and there's no finances, there's no provision, there's no, there's no encouragement. The people that said they would go with me have abandoned me. God, you called me to it, you'll bring me through it. Right? We try to encourage ourselves and equip ourselves, but there are times when we get to the place that God has called us to and it does not look like a land flowing with milk and honey. Abraham's arrives at Bethel and there was famine. Let me say this, callings are not comfortable. Callings are not comfortable. They sometimes come with hardship. So Abraham arrives in the Holy Land, the place that God has promised him. And he realizes there's famine, so he hightails it for Egypt. He hightails it for Egypt. And he puts himself into Egypt to avoid the famine. It's not the first time that you'll see the children of Israel fall back on the world to protect them. It's just funny to me how when God calls us to something, if it doesn't look like the way we want, we give up very quickly on God and we trust in a government. I came here and God's not providing, so Egypt will. Anytime you put your trust in government over God, it will always lead to imprisonment. It will always lead to slavery. Let me say this. Anytime you put your trust in anything, it means making yourself a slave to it. You have to make a decision on whether you will be a slave to God or a slave to man. Will you surrender to man or surrender to God? So more than once in times of famine do we see the lineage of Abraham rely on Egypt to sustain them. And because they do, they end up giving up their freedom to them. Our government, people around us, our organizations aren't who sustains us but God himself. So it's interesting to me that the land of Ur, the Mesopotamian area that Abraham would have come out of, is also called by another name, the Chaldeas, it's the Fertile Crescent, maybe you've heard about that in school, right, where everything grew, Mesopotamia, it's also known as Babylonia. And isn't it interesting that when Israel would fall away from the promise that God had made for them and they strayed, God would send them back to the beginning. He would send them back to Babylon. He would send them back to that fertile crescent. He'd send them back to the beginning of their journey near where the Garden of Eden was. And he'd say, you guys have not done it right. Start over. Some of you guys play those video games where you got like save features. Okay, we're like, you're playing and you die, but you get to pick up where you left off in another life. Some of the younger ones that play games. Okay, when we grew up, when we were kids, it was all or nothing. You played for 12 hours and you were on the last level and you died. You had to go back to the beginning. Those game systems did not have memory. I was like, well, there that went. 12 hours of my life. So you'd pee and start again. Okay. Some of you are like, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. <laughs> you know, no, that's usually when you broke something, okay? You, you kids today think, you, they, you, if your kids have ever raged quit, you hear them screaming and yelling and turn off the machine, okay? When we were, we didn't do that, okay? We just threw something through the window, but you didn't turn off the machine. There it all went, all right? <laughs> Leave it on until a fire started. Come on, some of you remember. <laughs> some of the older ones are like, yeah, my kids did that. It's annoying, okay? I get it. All right, so God would send them back to the beginning. 
And here's what's interesting. See, Noah understood what he had, excuse me, uh, Abraham understood what he had fallen into. Abraham understood when God called him and set him apart. See, because this was not Abraham's first rodeo with God. He knew about God. He had been taught about God. In fact, Abraham came from a line of people called the Hapiru. Hapiru. Can you guys say that? Hapiru. I think, I think I have it up there. I can show it to you. Did we get that in there? H-A-P-I-R-U. Hapiru. Okay? So Hapiru. Let, let me say it a different way. So Ha means house. And Peru means of the God. So this was house of the God. It was somebody, a Hapiru was somebody, he was a priest. He was a priest who served the gods. Whatever God that was, Ahapuru served God. He was a priest of the house of God. And so Abraham actually came from a lineage of these people. They were also called Horits. And Horits, it kind of, uh, uh, that's where we get the mythology of, Hor uh, of Horus, the Egyptian god. Okay, And the Horits were the priests that re reigned over uh, the Egyptian god in certain areas. But they were priests wherever they were. So whatever religion they, they came from, they were always, they came out of a lineage called the, the Haparu. Okay? Or, or let me say it a little faster. Haparu. Hebrew. They were Hebrews. The, Heber, the Haparu. And so the word Hebrew actually was just a, 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 a shifting of the word haparu. They were the priests that followed after God. And so whether or not they were serving the God of Yahweh or they had shifted and gone into idolatry and had now become Egyptian priests that ruled over Egypt, Abraham was clearly comfortable leaving Canaan and going right down to Egypt, okay? Because he knew other horits, other priests. And here's what's interesting is the, the, the beginning word of horits or the haparu, what it really means is these were a line of ruler priests. Let's say that again. They were a line of ruler priests. They were king priests. These weren't just people who worked in the temples, but they were actually men of stature. They were men of power. Abraham was rich. His father was very rich. And so these were men that were rulers over others who had many servants. They were powerful. They were not just, you know, monks. But they were ruler priests. Can, can we think of how Abraham might have been in contact with some of these ruler priests. We read that Abraham goes down to Canaan and he fights some battles. And when he does, he gets the spoils of war. And it shows us that he actually tithes to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was a ruler priest. He was a king priest. He was a Horitz. He was a Haparu. He was one of those who he was a king, but he was also a priest. And so there is this lineage from Noah where Noah began to teach his sons Shem and down through the line how to be king priests that had permeated through the, the, the crescent, the fertile crescent, Mesopotamia and the ancient world. And we see this happen. And somewhere along the ways, of course, as uh, and in chapter 12, before we read all this about Abraham, it's actually where the Tower of Babel takes place. So the beginning of 12 is the Tower of Babel. Then we read about the lineage so we understand uh, Terah and Abraham, okay? So something shifts, something takes place at the Tower of Babel. People are separated all over the earth and idolatry and other religions ekes its way into society. But the Haparu, the Hebrew, are these king priests, these ruler priests, 
who are set apart for God. And while Terah might have lost his way for a moment, his ancestors, his fathers, and all of that might have lost their way for a second, they still knew where they had come from. And they knew about this God, Jehovah, this God, Yahweh. They knew about it. And they knew they had fallen into idolatry. But Abraham was determined to break that cycle of idolatry and return them to their father, Noah, and his family. So they had lost their way. And I feel like sometimes we've grown up in cultures that, that teach us Christianity. We learned and we grew up with God. But we have lost our way and we have given ourselves over to idolatry. We have given ourselves over to an American version of Christianity where we start to slowly introduce idols into our life. And we start to slowly lose the power and authority of God in our life until finally one day we wake up and realize the God we're serving doesn't even look like the right God anymore. And we've given ourselves over. And we need a fresh encounter like Abraham did where he just says, you know what? I don't want these fake gods. I don't want church as usual. I don't want to walk into church and hear a good word and leave and there was no power. If this God I'm serving can't walk, talk, breathe, move, and act, then he's not a God I want to serve. There are so many of our churches that have given themselves over to idol worship of Yahweh. Where they come in and they are content with a God who does not speak with a God who does not heal, with a God who does not move. And maybe we need to be a little bit more like Abraham. Maybe we need to be people like Abraham that will break down those idols, that will burn down those altars that do not belong in our life, where we have sacrificed to a God who doesn't breathe, move, or act. If your version of God is one where you learn about him so you can be a good person, you have missed who he is. If your version of church is a place where you come to learn to be moral so you can be a good citizen, then you have missed who he is. And pretty soon, the God you worship, the son of heaven, might look more like an Egyptian God than he does the Hebrew God. Where you begin to change him into an image that's more sustainable for you. Where one day he looks like a burning bush and the next you make a pretty golden calf that's more digestible for you. And we build up altars because the real God is kind of scary. He's kind of demanding. He wants me to pray for people. And he wants me to speak on his behalf. And he wants me to share who he is with his other children. And that's kind of scary. And I just prefer a really safe version that I can pull out when I want him give him some thanks for how good my life is going according to my plan that he's blessing, and then put him back, cover him up, and save him for next Sunday. Is that where we're at? Is that where we're at? Or are we going to be the ruler priests? Are we going to catch it? See, we like, to, we like the Christianese. We like to take the, the promise Bible out. And we like to quote his promises. And we like to get up there and declare 29, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11 over our lives. Oh, he's got plans and he's going to prosper me and he's not going to hurt me. But we, we forget a lot of times that Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. Where he prophesies and says, oh, Israel, I'm going to bring destruction on your land. You've turned away from me. And if you won't turn away from these idols, I am coming to wipe your land. But don't worry. After you have suffered, I have a plan to prosper you. We read 29.11, but rarely do we go back to 29.10 and realize that we're in a mess. 
that we're facing consequences for what we've done, but God is saying, even though you might get grounded, I'm not kicking you out of the house because you're my son. And see, sons get grounded. They get their phones taken away. Daughters too. When I say sons, I mean daughters too. Look, I'm called the bride, and if I have to wear a wedding dress, you get to be a boy. Just, I'm sorry, okay? Tell you that all the time, I'd be pretty. Okay? So we're the sons of God. And though we might get grounded, he hasn't kicked us out of the house. And that's the good part about it, is that he's a plan for our future. But I'm telling you this, if you look at Israel, the pattern is clear. What brought destruction on Israel was always when they turned to other gods. When they placed idols in the way and they built up Asher poles and they, and they followed Baal worship and they had forgotten their God of heaven. Whenever they started to shift to other gods is always when destruction came on Israel. I believe we've made other gods. I believe that we've turned to political spirits instead of holy spirits. I believe we've made nationalism instead of kingdom citizens. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with being a patriot or national, having pride in our country. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with running for government or being a part of our government system. There, let me be very clear on this. There is nothing wrong with those things. They are good things. They are things we need to do. But the question is, is have you put them in front of God? Have you put those as your salvation? and taking God out of the equation. Are you frustrated and fearful? If you are frustrated right now and fearful, then it is possible that you have placed those things as an idol. Who sits in the throne of America is, holds more power over your peace than who sits on the throne of heaven. I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't do something or be diligent or care about that. We absolutely should, but it should not rob our peace. And, and, and I'm telling on myself too, it took my peace for a minute. It took my hope for a minute. It did. And then the Lord said, get rid of that idol. Move it out of your life. We're all prone to being like Father Abraham and having to remove idols out of our life. We're all prone to being like Tara, where we've just forgotten where we came from, from a minute. And whether or not you are woke up by your father or by a son, get woke. Wake up to the reality that heaven, heaven and being a kingdom citizen is the only citizen that we are called to be first. And because we are kingdom citizens, we can love our country. Because we are kingdom citizens, we can fight for this nation that we give to God and surrender to God and have asked him to bless. See, the nation of Israel, they were patriotic to Israel. They were nationalists of Israel. They loved their country because they knew the God that resided over it. They were in love with the country because the creator of that country, not because of the country itself. And the prophets of that day were unafraid to call Israel to account they were unafraid to say, Israel, you're going into captivity again. They did not care if Israel suffered. They only cared if Israel had a relationship with the God of heaven. 
Their nationalism never came before his presence. They were less concerned with their country and more concerned with their country loving God. And we have to be those people that we are less concerned with the political environment and more concerned about our soul's environment. We need people that are chasing people down, not for policies, but for revival. Revival. Because Jesus is the answer. And so in this season that it becomes apparent, we go, yeah, I've been caught up in this stuff. I've been caught up in my own life. I've been caught up in my career. I've been caught up in, my, in what's happening in the news. I've been caught up in the political environment. I'm caught up in all of that. And I got my eyes off Jesus for a second. You know, I prayed for people. I prayed, Lord, help me. But re- I prayed out of a political spirit. I prayed out of a fearful spirit. I prayed out of, Lord, if you don't fix this, we're all destroyed. It's over. God gives us hope. I don't know what the next couple of years is going to look like, but I can tell you this. We're promised Jeremiah 29, 11, That when the shaking is done, when the shaking is done, that he has a plan for our hope and our future. But we need to remove those altars. And I'll close with this. We need to tear down the altars. Remove the idols. How much of your peace have you put on an altar that is not God's? How much of your joy have you surrendered on an altar that does not belong to God? How many idols have you placed in front of the Lord? Every one of those idols separate you from intimacy. Lord, I don't hear you. That's because the Lord you're looking at is an idol. Lord, I don't see you. That's because there's an idol in your way. You've worshipped a picture of me, an image of me, that is not even who I am. When I close my eyes and try to see you, Jesus, do I see a 16th century painting? Or do I see a God who I have an intimate relationship with? Who have I placed between me and God? Have I placed my marriage between me and God where I idolize my marriage? Have I placed my job between me and God? Have I idolized my job? What is it that gives me safety and security that is not from heaven? Where does my peace come from? Where does my hope come from? Where does my love come from this morning? What idols do I need to tear down this morning? Even in my own life, is ministry an idol to me? Is my popularity as a pastor more important than his presence? Is my standing in the community, (laughs) other pastors and my reputation with them, more important to me than his opinion of me? Lord, let those never be idols where I seek man's approval over your approval. What is it that I'm trying to build? What is it that I'm trying to build? Just turn it off. What is it that I'm trying to build? Sean, will you come and play for a minute? What is it that I'm trying to build that is not built on the rock? I just want you to be with me in this moment. That we need to tear down these idols. 
We need to tear down the altars that do not belong to him so that we can set ourselves in a place where we can receive revival, where we can receive breakthrough. Because what I'm saying is not a condemning message. I'm trying to get us to the hope of the Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm trying to get us to the place where God can move through us and use us again. And when we remove the altars, revival can take place. Josiah rediscovered the word of God. And then he renewed the covenant. He repented of his sins. And he shared it with the people. And revival came. And destruction was stopped. Is it possible that who sits in a seat in our country is less about whether we receive destruction and our own repentance is more? Is it possible that if we will be a people, like 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, if my people, not the world's people, not the government people, but if my people who are called by my name, those, the remnant, those set apart for the Holy One, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, not the government, not the prideful politicians, my people will humble themselves and seek my face. Not an idol, not an image of me that stands in the way, but me, my face, and will turn from their wicked ways. Then I shall hear from heaven then I shall hear from heaven and I will heal their land. The key to our land being healed is by his people being humble, getting the idols out of the way and seeing his face and looking on Jesus and having a relationship with him that has nothing in the way. And when we do that, then he will hear from heaven and heal our land. And there is no evil there is no darkness. There is no system. There is no rotten politician that can stand in the way of God healing our land. God, we need you to heal our land so we humble ourselves and we don't build up prideful walls saying, Lord, I don't got no idolatry. I haven't put anything before you. I'm all good. Wow. Maybe you got an idolatry of theology. Maybe you got an idol of your own self-righteousness like a Pharisee. Maybe, Lord, I'm guilty of, of having a low opinion of others that don't see it like me or think differently than me. doesn't mean I'm wrong, but I have no right to think myself better, but rather instead have a heart for those that are lost with reprobate minds that are lost with destroyed thoughts that are leading to destruction. And those that would commit evil are still children of God that God wants to redeem, not destroy. Maybe, Lord, I'm guilty of saying, Lord, wipe them off the earth. Destroy them. No, destroy those things completely. Those things inside me that are not yours. I break down the altars. I burn down the idols. So will you just do that with me this morning? Whatever it is that's standing in between you and God, it's a moment to repent. It's a moment to just say, Lord, I just surrender. And if there's anything between you and I, if there's any idols, if I've made any golden calves, Father, that you know that you called me to be a priestly nation, to be a part of this line of Hebrews that was set apart as rulers and priests. 
God called the Hebrew children a holy nation of priests. They were priests. And you're a priest. And the order of Melchizedek, you are in the line of kings and priests. You are rulers. You are not subjugants. And we need to start acting like sons and get our relationship with Father in line. We are rulers because He is the ruler of everything. And so what we decree and declare is manifest on the earth. And we better not be decreeing and declaring through the lens of idols. So this year is a year about God saying, cleanse yourself of the idols. Get everything out that does not belong. Purify yourselves and prepare the bride to be made pure. Because the Lord is looking for his bride. And he has removed the veil. And he's found his bride spotted and covered in acne. And he wants to remove from his bride those things that do not belong. So that he can come back for a spotless bride. Someone will tell me, I think Jesus is coming back soon. And my answer to them is, when I see the bride looking kind of spotless, I'll know it's in the season. When I see the bride and the call to holiness and purity, to remove itself, lest it get into greasy grace. Jude 1.4 says this, we've turned grace into lewdness. We've used grace as an excuse for lewdness. When I see the church no longer use grace as an excuse for sin, but use it as a power to break free from sin, then the bride will become spotless and I might consider returning. But here's the good news. I found the majority of people that are focused on Jesus is coming back, Jesus is coming back, Jesus is coming back, are the people that have missed the idea that Jesus doesn't need to come back, he's already here. And that if you have a personal relationship with him and you press into his presence, that you can see him, hear him, talk to him. See his presence now. <laughs> and if you have that understanding, then Jesus coming back is just dessert. But we're not starving. We're not hungry. He's here now. We can feast now. We can be in his presence now. Don't wait till death to meet him. Bow your heads for a moment. Just, I want an intimate moment. We're going to have an altar call, but I just want an intimate moment where nobody's looking around. You don't have to participate, but please just close your eyes for a moment so that everyone else has privacy. I just want to say this. If you have idols in your life and you know you built up things that have not allowed you to see God and His face intimately, because there are other things that get in there and steal your joy, steal your hope, and you know you're like, yeah, even if you don't know what they are, I just know I have idols because there are things that occupy my mind. And I know I've built up things. There are fears and worries and things that are in the way. If that's you this morning and you say, I need, I need prayer to break those walls down to have my breakthrough, just raise your hand. No one else is looking around. It's just me. Come on. <laughs> Hallelujah. So many hands. So many hands. If you would say this, I'm not one of his people. I'm not called by his name. I've never encountered this Jesus, this God who is and was and is to come. I don't have a relationship with this Jesus. I've never asked this Jesus to come in and even forgive me the first time. But today I want a relationship with this God. 
I don't want false gods in my life. I don't want false hope in my wife, but I want a relationship with this Jesus. If that's you this morning and you want to accept Jesus in your heart and make that commitment to make him the Lord of your life, will you raise your hand? Come on, anybody else? Amen. Amen. Anybody else? If you need to get back, you feel like you have walked away and you've served other gods and it's time for you to give your heart back to Jesus. Maybe you did before, but you've been serving other gods or you've walked away from God and you want to make a prayer to rededicate your life. If that's you, then raise your hand. Jesus, yes. Amen. Amen. So will you pray this with me, church? Everyone pray this with me. Say, dear Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus to save me, to forgive my sins, to wash me clean. Lord, I rediscover you and I give you my life. Wash me clean. Forgive me. Make me new. And this, from this moment, for the rest of my life, I will serve no other gods before you. But I will serve you. I will love you. And I will seek your face. Come into my life. Change me by the power of your Holy Spirit. Make me a new creation. Fill me with your Spirit. I become one with you today. In the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Holy Spirit wants to encounter you this morning. Holy Spirit wants to encounter you this morning. Let me say this. The mark of someone who has been encountered by the Holy Spirit. See, He is the Spirit of Holy. He is the Spirit of Holy. And if a Spirit of Holy is in you, then there should be something holy coming out of you. If the spirit of holy resides inside of you, then what comes out of you should also be holy. And God is saying, I'm going to turn you into a people that what comes out of you is holy, is righteous, and is of good report. That it might transform the world around you that is unholy. That the light in you might break the darkness. So this morning I want to say this, if you need healing, there is a holy God who wants to encounter you with his love. If you need prayer, if you need breakthrough, finances, you need a word from God, you came in here dry and you say, I want that fire. If you need healing, I want my altar call team to come. They should already be here. You're it? Where's my altar call team? Come on. I want you to come and get prayer. I am going to pray for people this morning. I'm going to take a minute. I just want you to know this, that I will take a minute so that you guys have a chance to say hello to me and greet me and talk to me and have a moment of my time. But if you need prayer from me as well, that I will, after that greeting time, I'll return here. So if you linger, I'll pray over you as well. I want you to understand that I have to pick a balance between making sure that I get to be your pastor and engage you and pray for you as well, both of those things. So as I dismiss you, you're free to come to the altar now. Go ahead and come. You're free to leave if you want, and I'm going to dismiss you. So you're free to do either one and linger in his presence. And so if nobody told you this, I just want you to know that I love you, God loves you, 
Shalom. You're dismissed to come or, or linger. We want to pray for you. Send us a message with your prayer requests through Facebook or email and let us know how we can pray for you today. Also, let us know how this message impacted your life. I love you. God loves you. Shalom.